Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. Good morning, everyone. Yes, it's a lovely day out there. This is uh, everybody who lives in Melbourne uh, is saying, I'm not even going to talk about how lovely the weather is because it will change instantly. <laughs> it was beautiful and foggy as well. It was yeah, it was really nice. And, and uh, if you're not a Melbourne person, one of the things that happens during that period, this period of beautifulness, is the uh, balloon people start coming. I don't know if you ever noticed, but early in the morning, you usually get this stately uh, movement of uh, hot air balloons going across the skyline. And it's quite freakish and uh, almost science fiction-ish. Especially when it's foggy. That's right. That was the thing I was just thinking about. It (laughs) it just inspires so many thoughts. Anyway, we've got a pretty good uh, full program today for people who are listening uh, under their dunas, if that's what you're doing. Because it's not cold outside. You should be pottering around making yourself a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. I'm onto my second coffee already. Well, that's exactly right. We've been up and we're up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And, of course, I'm Annie. Oh, and I'm Kim. Yeah, that's right. And today, uh, later on, uh, Rank and File is going to honour the anniversary of the Westgate Bridge disaster, uh, which is uh, always good to remember what can happen if uh, uh, systems don't work, uh, people die. Mm. That's right. And uh, Kevin Healy is going to review the week that was and what a week it has been. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one too. And later on, after Hapa State, we're going to be talking to a representative of uh, Bendigo Action Collective about what is going on around the building of a mosque and the development of a vortex of racism in the town. People might have heard about the racists disturbing the council meeting. They're quite emboldened in Bendigo, so find out what's going on. That's right. But before that, we're going to talk to Dr Claire Land and her book, Decolonising Solidarity, Dilemmas and Directions for Supporters of Indigenous Struggles. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and uh, we'll have a bit of the wonky music. See, it won't be me. There's 
We've got Dr. Claire on the line. Hi, Annie. How are you? Hi, Claire. Hi, Kim. How are you? Good, thank you. Now, we're all very excited at 3CR about your your book, Decolonising Solidarity. Uh, I know that you've been already done a launch and you've also been down to NIBS, the International uh, National Bookshop, to give people an understanding of what the book's about. But can you give our listeners an understanding of why you think it's important to have written this book? Yeah, I, I always felt like it needed to be written. Like, you know, not always, but after I started to get educated by amazing political Aboriginal people, um, like especially Gary Foley, Lillian Holt, um, Wayne Atkinson, and then I met uh, Gary, I, I met Robbie Thorpe, and he continued that process. And sort of, yeah, I just felt like um, the book, the book needs to be written by someone, and it, it's trying to capture up the uh, the advice and guidance and politics that um, I was sort of enlightened to by those those amazing activists I've mentioned and to try to capture that up and put it in a book that they, I hoped, could tell newly involved supporters, read this first (laughs) because they did mention that um, there was a lot of work for them in having to educate each new generation of of their prospective supporters about how to do that Um, and a bit about the the history of the political struggle that they've been, uh, that they've inherited so the core element is for people who are interested in support, uh, supporting uh, the Indigenous struggle, First Peoples struggle, uh, they might have a good good heart, they believe that they sh- this is an important issue that has to be supported uh, and uh, they might believe that, you know, with their great European know-how that they can just walk in there and uh, lead the march. Is, is this what this book is trying to prevent? Exactly. So it's very much inspired by the the struggle of, um, of Aboriginal people in the southeast of Australia, uh, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and elsewhere. But um, that's the place that I'm more familiar with, and where um, the land rights, uh, black power, and um, community control, um, political community is particularly, um, um, I guess has been particularly creative in the last um, 40 years. And there is a kind of pattern that's that's evident of people who want to be supportive, yes, like you say, of of rushing to try to address this huge injustice that people have become aware of all of a sudden, but not realising that other people have made those exact same gestures um, of support and that that might not... Your first impulse of what you want to do on your first impulse as a supporter may not be um, the most useful thing to do. Now, it's interesting because uh, this is the uh, uh, the new uh, 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 
ground that needs to be covered in all activism, in a sense, in in Australia or all places that have been colonised, I'd have to say, that uh, people of good faith uh, are being presented with this notion that uh, they are culturally uh, insufficient in regards to uh, understanding uh the indigenous uh, indigenous uh, take on the world, and th- and that if the activists don't understand, then actually uh, they they may be in um, as much difficulty in doing good as people who are basically just exploiters. Yes, <laughs> and that's just such an irony, isn't it? That um, the most passionate supporters. Could actually even you know be holding you back um, just because of the lack of knowledge and it's interesting the idea of culturally cultural insufficiency because um, I, I can totally see where you're coming from and it's but it's also about just identifying what your culture is because a lot of people coming from a, um, a white European background um, especially once they've moved away from that to a place like Australia. So they've been uprooted, well, left as well as invaders to come to another place, losing that sense of what your cultural background is and what you bring to the encounter with, with Aboriginal cultures. So just identifying that you're not just a normal kind of... Um, you're, you're not just a... a you're not a clean you, skin. You bring a culture. Yeah, you're not a clean you skin. A yeah, you're, you're yeah. not a clean skin. You're not the definition of normal. Yes, that, yeah, that's right. Thank you. you. Yeah, yeah. That white people speaking about everyone else as if they're the other. Yeah. I wanted to ask about um, campaigns like Recognise because I've had quite a few people who would consider themselves anti-racist who immediately think, oh, well, of course I support uh, Recognise because it's about recognising Aboriginal people in the Constitution. And then you actually say, well, is this actually coming from Aboriginal people themselves? And that's often a question that no one asks. Yeah, look, it is interesting. In in some ways, you could say it is something that has come from Aboriginal people or at least out of um, the nationwide consultations from the um, reconciliation decade. But what happened at the end of that decade was that three options that were put up for what should happen to uh, what should happen next as a national reckoning with um, with the injustice of invasion. And um, there were three things that came up. One was making a treaty. Um, and one was recognising Aboriginal people in the constitution and removing the race, um, uh, the, the sort of the, the ability to make special um, laws for people of, of a certain race. And it's my my view on this is that is really expressed, I guess, indirectly in in one of the chapters in the book, which talks about the history of. Um, non-Aboriginal action in support of Aboriginal struggles in Australia and the the, the history and the um, politics and the outcomes of the 1967 referendum. And once when you read that, you kind of start to, to realise that there's a huge um, there's a huge question about political priorities. Who gets to say what is the national campaign that gets 
um, that gets the funding and gets all the, the white support. How come it's not um, the main agenda of Aboriginal people? In 67, that was land. I mean, it still is land. Land is a central question. Um, sovereignty. But, yeah, sovereignty. So how come that always gets delayed because something else is easier um, or more achievable or, more, more importantly, more palatable to white people? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, fascinating. Um, and uh, we should get back to this particular book because uh, the clear facts is that you haven't gone ahead with a whole opinionated piece. What you've done is based it on interviews. I mean, it seems a very indigenous approach to me that you, it's, you know, that business of sitting and listening. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's, I, look, I certainly did um, engage at some length in the process of writing the book with how could you go about doing any research in relation to Indigenous people, um, it, given the history of research, what history, what research has meant and what research has done to Aboriginal people um, over the years. But, I, yeah, I guess I, I approached it with... Um, I, I wanted to do interviews because I wanted to sit with people. I didn't want to be sitting in an archive um, um, for five years. I wanted to be with people um, and doing doing stuff. Um, and I felt that the interviews might even start to sort the conversations that, that needed to be had more explicitly, the reflective conversations about the politics. Um, and But, yeah, I also had the, just had the fantastic opportunity through the interviews to sit with amazing people who've been doing this for so many years. Um, so I got to sit with Alma Thorpe and Bill Roberts, who worked together for 25 years at the Aboriginal Health Service. I got to sit with Chicka Dixon. So just, um, you know, amazing people. Um, Chris Twining and Lisa Thorpe. Um, it was, yeah, it was great to, to be able to learn and, and try to capture up some of the amazing reflections and practice of these people. I've just done an interview with the director of Puta Perry and the uh, Rainmakers, which is about the Western Desert people and their uh, seeking ca- uh, their rights to custodial connection with their land. And uh, she's a uh, uh, Chinese descent Australian filmmaker who uh, the elder picked up and said, "You, you can make this film for us." Right, she had actually nothing, no experience at all, and uh, it took ten years to make this film, and now they're like her family, or she's now like their family. Um, do you feel a little bit like that—that that you were picked? Um, no, <laughs> no. Um, uh, like I said, I felt like any, I feel like a number of the people that I met when I was at uni in a, this great student group, Students for Land Justice and Reconciliation, that Foley was very influential in. Um, I felt like any of us could have written a book. Um, so I'm sort of, I'm a generic activist in that sense. Uh, so, and also I wasn't I wasn't chosen directly by anyone, um, by any of my mentors to, to write the book. Um, I really wanted to learn about this more deeply for myself. I knew that I needed to know a hell of a lot more, even though I started writing it after I'd already been involved in this politics for nearly 10 years. I needed to know a hell of a lot more. And then I wanted to return that to people from the community who, who invested in the book through the interviews. So tell yeah. us about the process. I mean, in fact, this is a question that... Uh, uh, Kim should ask because she's actually doing a doctorate as well. But uh, the process of writing a doctorate and the uh, rigours that go with it, which are incredibly European in their uh, 
understanding of the world, that process you had to go through. How did you marry that? You must have had a very uh, useful supervisor. Oh, yeah, my supervisor was great. He was um, he's a pro-feminist um, activist and scholar and critical social worker. <clears throat> and when I say critical social worker, he's not a caseworker. Um, what, in the social services sense? Yeah, he is um, someone who tries to act upon the world. So, he's, you know, like he's an activist. And that's a critic, but in, in that sense, um, trying to change the structures that create the problems for individuals that you see walking through social services. Um, and also act... But his particular view as well was acting upon the people who are advantaged by the systems that, you, that, that create the situation where you've got people walking through the door at social services. So and as a pro-feminist, of course, he was working um, in a very, para- very much a parallel sort of politics um, as a white man um, working in um, trying to, um, you know, support women um, or gender justice. Um, and then I had amazing um, guidance from Gary Foley, Tony Birch and Marjorie Thorpe, who were, um, who were my critical reference group for the project. Um, and then I was sitting across from... Um, Robbie Thorpe on, over the panel at 3CR for 10 years during the writing of it too. So, um, yeah, I had I guess I, I absorbed so much from all of those um, those ways of, of, um, of ways of I wonder was there uh, anything? Oh, sorry, was there anything that you really wanted to put in the book that you ended up having to leave out? Oh. <laughs> so <Yeah>. much. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's yeah, it's a really hard process. Um, but Tony said to me, actually, he supervised me for honours as well. And at that stage, he said to me, no one's going to know what you delete. So don't worry. People aren't going to feel that, that something's missing. You're the one who's, who's going to be upset by that. Um, yeah, so it is uh, it's difficult because I, I did have hours of transcripts, amazing things. You know, I, One of the things I didn't really put in that I would have loved to was about um, what what um, is the impact on people's families, well, on the relationship with your family when you are an activist. And that, but that would be something for both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. There would be a, a lots of complex stories about what that means, what, how that plays out differently for different people, not even just across different um, positions of, say, Aboriginality and, and non-Aboriginality. And it, actually, that, that's something that came up in that... Uh, it has come up in the whole... Um, free Karen campaign, a uh, uh, um, social media campaign across the last couple of days. I was just going to say, you need to write another book. <laughs> we could do a case study on you. Well, any of us really. <laughs> but, you know, that, but what Robbie says about, about family, what he had said to me at one stage is that in this, when, when he was engaging with me as a new, newly involved activist, he trusts that when he when he educates me or he engages me about this struggle, that I bring my family with me. So you, you have to bring... That taught me, I guess, that you need to bring your family with you. And Foley says that too. You've got to go home and try to talk to the people that you're closest to. If you can't, if you can't have conversations with them about this politics and, and sort of change their views, then you've got no chance of changing the view of the, quote, masses and... That's been one of the beautiful things is that some of the people I've been, I have been closest to have um, really deeply engaged in this and that, that includes my dad, 
Um, my mum's really well. She she knows a bit of the history from her own studies, but um, and my ex partner, um, he spent ten years um, creating really amazing artworks um, in relation to this politics through meeting me. I would say mm. it's um. Everyone always says how lucky I am that my well my family are sort of left wing radicals. It makes it difficult if it's not the case. Well, all my family are not left wing radicals. My, um, my mum's family does have Labor Party in the in the background, um, and she's a very good feminist. Um, but uh, my dad's, you know, my dad's parents were absolutely not my, you know, my and his side of the family to some degree. Well, actually, a lot of his cousins are in, um, One Nation voters and and were. Um, but yeah, I had political conversations with my grandma. She um, at one stage at a family dinner party. Um, said something about um, something really, really racist about Aboriginal people and, and the scale of humanity. And so I, I had to talk to her about that. And my dad said, oh, I usually just ignore those sorts of comments. He said that at the dinner party as well. And I said, well, you know, you can't. You've got to talk about it, you know, here mm. and now. And, yeah, so, look, I don't come from a revolutionary left-wing family, but... Um, I'm re- I am very lucky with my immediate my mum and dad and stepmum are all very goodly. Yeah, pretty good. Um, uh, I guess you could say Democrats. You, you must have listened to alternative music. Oh yeah. Oh look, <laughs> it's just that's the, where it all went wrong. That's my, where it all went I listen wrong. To whatever my sister. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's I just to whatever my sister listened to. <laughs> no, yeah, thing, yeah. it, it was the Karen thing. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's alternative totally music. Fault. Did it totally too? Fault. It's meeting him. Yeah, it's his fault. (laughs) Thanks for talking. Oh, before you go, I was really interested in who you got to publish your book. Uh, It's uh, uh, from you. You published it in UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I wanted to um, go with Zed Books. They are uh, well, they're a workers' co-op, which is really cool. Um, But they publish a lot of great things, and they had published two really, really great books. One was a very um, very important book for me. That was the uh, a book about Indigenous um, research um, questions called Decolonising Methodologies. So the title of my book is a homage to that amazingly influential and important book by a Maori scholar, Linda Tuhiwai-Smith. So I did really want to go with Zed. Um, and I felt like the book, since I had done a bit of research and looked at what else was out there, say from Canada um, and New Zealand, there isn't something like this yet, um, so I think I felt like it, it would find an audience overseas, and so a, an international publisher was good for that. That's um, right. But yeah, they're, they're a great outfit, um, and I felt like they get it. Whereas you never know, um, Australia is very parochial with its um, it's a very small publishing scene, and I just felt that this it would be more maturely um, they would received and reviewed. Um, Within a within an international publisher, than it would be here, because it is actually groundbreaking work. You have put, you've provided something that does not exist, that did not exist That's before right. your yeah. book appeared. So the book is decolonising solidarity, dilemmas and directions for supporters of indigenous struggles, and how can they get it? You can uh, you can go through through readings. You can go through the new international bookstore. Um, and, and so you can go yeah, online. You can get it online, yeah. So I have a list of where you can get it. Uh, I've got a Facebook page for the book, Decolonising Solidarity, and I also have a website. So if you search for the book and my name, 
you'll find the page, you'll find the web page, and it has a, a list of links on on the book page, which um, which will help you out. Yeah, decolonising solidarity one word dot org, and. Yeah, with, with a Z. That's right. And the the other thing about it is that uh, uh, you can also go to your library and say, you should recommend this yeah. book. That's the best way, yeah, yeah. Ask your local library because they have got it in. It's in quite a few um, local government libraries already, which is really cool. So that's a great way. Mm. Of that way other poor activists can read it. Yeah. 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 Oh, and I should have said Anpar Victoria actually um, has copies of the book for activists at, at, at a bit cheaper than um, what you can get on books in bookstores. And apparently right, 3CR. Like Victoria online shop. And 3CR is getting a few too for sale. That's exactly right. We've been asked already. So there you go. Good. You're a success. Thank now you. you can go off and walk the wilds of Victoria. You've done your duty <laughs> Thank to me. You. Thank okay, you very much, Claire. Thanks, Thanks Claire. Bye. Bye. Yeah, that's right. Wonderful piece of music. That That's a, a new p- a version of Black Bella, White Bella by Zucchini Clan. That's not hard to f- forget. <laughs> no. <laughs> Zucchini Clan. Zucchini is one of my favourite vegetables. <laughs> but we've decided that we'll have a bit of a chat about, if it didn't reach your radar, a bit of a chat about saving Karen. Yes, or um, hashtag free Karen, if uh, people are on the Twitters. Yeah, give them a lowdown. Uh, well, it's the government has released an anti-radicalisation uh, toolkit, uh, which it seems to be pushing on schools. And there has been a bit of a reaction to one of the case studies of radicalisation, a um, which leads to violence. Yes, violence. Violence. Um, a this case study is uh, Karen. And uh, she grew up in a loving family who never participated in activism of any sort. And when she moved out of her home to attend university, Karen became involved in the alternative music scene, which was obviously her downfall, um, student politics and left-wing activism. So this is that's just the start of this case study, basically, on someone who ends up being an environmental activist, shame. Um, and this is meant to be a, one of the government's examples of radicalisation that we should all be alarmed about and report well, it's been put together by uh, a special, one of the special ministers in the uh, present government. We've got all these special ministers, as just like we've got special police forces that are being created. Uh, the uh, and this is Michael Keenan. Mm. Uh, uh, he uh, has uh, apparently um, taken a report that was put together by some academics two years ago, and this is an interesting point about how policy and uh, propaganda meld together for the purposes of a particular ideology. Uh, this uh, was a, a academic report uh, done based on th- about uh, three dozen interviews with people who have become uh, associated with radical uh, 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 politics, um, expressions of politics. Rad- radical meaning um, bad, one assumes, but not necessarily in the report, I don't believe. Just not mainstream. Not mainstream. And uh, they did this about two years ago. It was just a fairly insignificant piece. And uh, this uh, government's used it to create this piece of propaganda. The academics have said that it was never intended for, well, their work, as far as they were concerned, was never intended to go into schools. And uh, the uh, government is... uh, that department has sent 
a letter to department ministers, education ministers in other states to suggest that they uh, distribute it amongst uh, schools in uh, Australia. It hasn't actually, because they're all on school holidays right at the moment, so it hasn't actually breached the barriers of those young minds. This has just been, uh, it's gone viral now. Mm. There's, um, I mean, it's really concerning, like the brochure classes behaviour as notable, concerning or needing attention. And the individual, when an individual begins to identify with an ideology, that's different from the mainstream, apparently that's notable behaviour. And when they become hostile towards people they see as an enemy, including law enforcement and the um, um, government, that is seen as uh, needing attention. Um, And it really has gone viral. Um, There's been some quite funny... um, Really funny. Really, really funny. Well, they have pictures of people digging in the ground saying... um, this is a, a class one action, uh, a radical piece of radical behaviour, that sort of thing. Oh, yes, there was one that, you know, I think my mum is trying to radicalise me. She showed me how to recycle. That's what exactly should I do? Right. <laughs> exactly. And it leads to other things. And there's other ones where people have said that, similar to the gun lobby in the US, are demanding uh, psychiatric screening in schools for young people who might end up committing a mass shooting. Anyone who understands Bayesian statistics can explain why this is a dumb the is dumb. The risk factors associated with these behaviours are extremely common, while the behaviour we're trying to prevent is incredibly rare. This means any tool designed to detect the risk factors will identify many hundreds of thousands, even millions, of false positives. And another thing that's come up is this very interesting thing that's happening in England, where because of the Islamic threat, uh, and remembering that this particular thing that's been put uh, proposed for Australian schools, uh, de-radicalisation, was, was in, apparently to reduce the concept of people going off and uh, joining ISIS, mm-hmm. and suddenly it's now becoming people fighting for the environment. Yes, but not people going to fight for Israel. Or for uh, a, a Christian fundamentalists who... Uh, came from a nice, loving, white, working-class family who then wanted to uh, work forever for making more money at the expense of everybody else, Mm. for example. that's a religion, isn't it? Oh, that's a religion. (laughs) But anyway, the thing that's going on in England is that uh, the school said it was... uh, They took a 14-year-old who had been talking about uh, eco-terrorism as a word in a French discussion who happened to be a 14-year-old in, in a French class, and it was just a new word that he discovered, and he thought he was being very clever at uh, talking about something that uh, he'd learnt in debating society uh, and practising his French. Uh, he was a 14-year-old Muslim student. He was taken out to an inclusion centre, which is very Orwellian. For re-education. Yeah, yeah. And um, he was uh, confronted by two department people, one behind and one forward in uh, in front of him, which is sort of a real police tactic. The child was uh, extremely distressed and the parents are taking the uh, school to court uh, for a racist action. Uh, but um, 
the school said it was protecting the welfare of the child in line with statutory and non-statutory guidance, including the prevent duty, in inverted commas, the government initiative that aims to stop people turning to extremism and terrorist violence, according to the legal documents, which is similar, one assumes, to the uh, compulsion that a a school has to uh, report uh, uh, physical abuse to children. I feel like you wonder what the aim of this must be to intimidate and terrify people to create that atmosphere. That's exactly what it's for. Uh, Enter the new Australian uh, version of new police forces, uh, PSOs, uh, um, waste of money. This is public money that's being used to do this. Yeah, what John Oliver called the Aussie Stasi. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to use the Nazi word, but I just contained myself. (laughs) I can't. (laughs) Rank and file. A span of the new Westgate Bridge in Melbourne collapsed today, killing at least 28 people and injuring many others. Rescue crews are digging under piles of twisted metal and wood to try and locate 21 men. On this week's edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR, we'll be looking at the 45th anniversary of the Westgate Bridge collapse and the upcoming memorial service. I'm the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington. Thursday, October 15, 2015, marks 45 years since the worst industrial accident to take place in Australia. On October 15, 1970, at 11.50am, A span of the Westgate Bridge, under construction at the time, collapsed, killing 35 workers. That disaster and commemoration is a powerful reminder in itself of the importance of workplace safety. Young men arrived for work, yet never arrived home that night. Workers on the ill-fated project, Tommy Watson and Pat Preston, described the months leading up to the collapse. Before the actual bridge collapsed, there was a bridge in Wales, Milford Haven, collapsed and killed four people. And we were very concerned about it because we thought it was the same sort of bridge was our bridge safe. So after a couple of weeks, we called the unions down and we refused to go to work one day. Uh, we, five or six hundred people just sat in the sheds. And we were addressed by a person called Jack Hindshaw. He was the chief engineer working for Friedman Fox and said to us that he was the best bridge builder in the whole world. As far as he was concerned, it was safe. And if it wasn't safe, he wouldn't be up there. The guys went back to work... Um believe in what the engineers had actually said. I mean, from that day onwards, I've never, ever believed uh, what an engineer says on a construction site. I always like to get another opinion, but um, at that time, uh, there was a lot of faith placed in those engineers. The span which collapsed between piers 10 and 11 consisted of two steel sections. When the 2,000-tonne sections were jacked into place, they did not align correctly In an attempt to remove a bulge in the steel, many 20-ton blocks of steel were placed on the span. Rigger on the job, Pat Hanafy, explains the day. Eddie Holson. So we stopped to talk to Ian Miller. Ian Miller was an engineer. He knew everybody. He knew everyone by their name and their nickname. The lift door was closed and Tony Dominovich seen me through the wires and he opened the door. And Ian Miller said to me, um, Eddie, you and Eddie, you can go down before us. So we went down the lift 
And as we come out of the lift, we could hear this awful squeaky noise. It held there for a, a few seconds and then all of a sudden, down. Failing to remedy the situation, the chief engineer on the project, Jack Hindshaw, ordered boilermaker Barney Butters and his trades assistant, Deds Gibson, to remove bolts in order to eliminate the problem. Hindshaw, who introduced himself to the construction workers as an engineer who had built bridges all over the world and was a recognised expert. Hindshaw instructed Butters and Gibson to tighten the bolts until they snapped as a means of removing them. Metal workers union organiser on the job, Jimmy O'Neill, reflected years later. He said, This action was without any consultation with the unions, the safety committee or the workforce. If we had known, we would never have agreed to this procedure. O'Neill recalled, the steel was turning blue, the rust was spitting off, and there was a groaning noise. Then came the disaster, and the tragedy that followed. O'Neill recalled, with a loud bang, the span broke and came down. The disaster happened. Thirty-five of our workmates, including the crew removing the bolts, were killed in a tangled mess of steel. At 11.50am, October 15th, 1970, Watson and Preston described the collapse. I've never been in a war zone, but it was the closest thing you'd see to a war zone. Um, there was live people, there was dead people. I was in the crew carrying people out of the sheds on the, um, which came down in the structure. For a while we was actually carrying people out in stretches and they were just covered in mud. And one of the guys, um, I'd never forget it, he was actually alive, he was moving, but his head was... Um, Partly seven. It was a big cut. Total frenzy and activity by the, the various workers. This was just beyond every, everything that I'd ever ex- in any way experienced. What happened was they, they didn't use cranes to erect it. They jacked it up with hydraulics and they did it from pier to pier. And when they jacked it up, it had a buckle in it, one side of it. So when they jacked the second side up, they put RSJs in so it wouldn't buckle. When they tried to bolt it together on top of the bridge, one side was buckled, one wasn't. So they put about um, four or five hundred tonne of concrete blocks to try and get the buckles out. The buckles didn't come out. So Jack Hindshaw had this idea about taking bolts out of the splice plates and like a piece of rope, and the buckles would come out like a piece of rope. And they did two joints. And when they got to the third joint, which is actually the middle of the bridge, they basically pulled too many bolts out. And, and what happened was, I understand that the steel went blue, the holes disappeared, they're trying to get the bolts back in, and, and it just turned blue and it just snapped and the whole lot come down. And a lot of people don't realise, most people got burned to death because what happened was, on the morning of the collapse, we sent 500 gallons of diesel up because all the welding machines, the cranes, everything was run by diesel in them days. And it all exploded. So when the bridge actually come down, a lot of people were inside the flames yelling and screaming, but they couldn't get out because of the heat. And, it, and we couldn't get to them because of the radiant heat. Just behind me, there was somebody caught up in the wire. You had been blown from under the, the bridge. As the, as the deck come down and the wind rushed out, there was somebody who was actually blown past me. You know, it was 10 to 12, so people were moving around. And in fact, them days used to get paid cash 
and it was payday too. So people were starting to get ready for their pay and all sorts of things. So it was a pretty busy time. Plus they had quite a few engineers there who were there supervising the bolts coming out. So it was a fairly big crew on top. Also, there was people under the bridge who got killed when the bridge come down. There was people walking to lunch underneath. A couple of them got blown out across the road, but a couple got caught when the actual bridge fell on top of them. Bob Setka, father of John Setka, the current Victorian Secretary of the Construction Division of the CFMEU, assisted his injured workmates and was the last man rescued following the collapse. Tommy Watson describes the recovery effort. It come down that quick. On the Saturday, we got the first aid officer... He was, the first aid shed was downstairs and the normal sheds were upstairs. I mean, that wouldn't happen today. Anyway, when we cut him out on the Saturday, he was still sitting in his chair and his lunch was still there beside him. I mean, he was pretty well like a pancake sort of thing, but he never even had time to get out of his chair, come down so quick. So a lot of people wouldn't know what happened, but a lot of people wrote it down. A lot of people watched it come down and, and quite a few people wrote it down and survived. When the bridge collapsed, the police put barriers around the actual bridge. And my father stood there for five hours to find out if I was alive or dead. Because what happened was the actual office collapsed, all the clock cut, everything collapsed. And there was no records of who was alive or dead. So you go, your family keep, went through it too. It wasn't, uh, you know, I think it was five o'clock that day, we went up to the Spotswood Hotel to ring our families on a, on a red phone. So it was pretty traumatic for everybody and, of course, the people who died and, you know, the families are left behind. John Cummins, who later became the last Victorian Secretary of the BLF and then President of the Victorian Construction Division of the CFMEU, worked on the Westgate project as a scaffolder at the 2004 Westgate Bridge Memorial Service. Cummins was the keynote speaker and stated, we think there is a correlation between safe workplaces and organised workplaces. We think this is one of the unmistakable lessons that have come out of the construction of the Westgate Cummins went on to add, leaving job safety to others or taking it for granted are recipes for injuries and worse, and this is not going to be tolerated by any of us. Cummins was one of the workers on that bridge that went on to become a legend of the trade union movement. Others included Paddy Donnelly, who went on to become an organiser with the BLF, Pat Preston, who became the safety officer at the CFMEU, and Tom Watson, who was the Victorian secretary of the FEDFA and then assistant secretary of the CFMEU following amalgamation. Watson, Preston and Hanafi describe the aftermath of the Westgate Bridge catastrophe. Some people were basically drunk for a month. Some people, uh, their marriage broke down. There was a lot of people handled it different ways. I think I handled it fairly well. I was only 22-year-old at the time. And, and what you've what you got to understand is the bridge collapsed on the Thursday. We got sacked on the Tuesday. And then we started going to funerals. For the week or so afterwards, in fact, more than a week afterwards... Um, seem to be attending a funeral every day or two or three funerals every day it's, uh, and that really brought it home I, I think just how wide an area and how many people that had affected I think I went to nine funerals in one day five funerals the following day unemployed um, no job, didn't want a job, mentally, mentally couldn't work uh, drank a lot of alcohol, certainly a lot of alcohol had a few months off, then started looking for work. It certainly, looking back on it now, I think I handled it fairly well compared to some people. And there was busy in the hospitals as well, and thinking, oh, geez, how lucky you are. There I was, I was walking, I was talking, I was able to go home. There was people in the hospitals in plasters and bandage, but then there, apart from all those who would who were buried. The night before, 
we were all in the Vic Hotel in High Street, and we always played pool. That Friday night when I went in, there was none of them there. They were all gone. This year's commemoration, the 45th anniversary of the Westgate Bridge collapse, takes place in the Westgate Bridge Memorial Park from 11.30am on Thursday, October 15. We leave today's program with Mark Seymour's tribute to the Westgate Bridge workers. My name is Eddie, I'm a worn man now But I know where I was that day At the base of the tower When I saw the mighty bridge give way Bolts started snapping on the western span They sounded like machine gun fire You should have heard her when she came down The wind blew me over the wire job that day, but they swore blue murder she would never come down. I got away with six broken ribs, I'm the luckiest man around. And a cold wind blows down by the river where nobody goes. Hell broke free when the bridge came down. When the bridge came down la 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 na 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 la 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 na 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 Sometimes I lie awake at night And I think about the ones who die The riggers and the chippies And the boiler makers the boys who had nowhere to hide And I think about how proud we were And how we got a bad job done You gotta trust who you're working with When the steel starts to buckle in the sun And a cold wind blows Down by the river where nobody goes Hell broke came down and a cold wind blows down by the river where nobody goes hell broke free when the bridge came down when the bridge came down na na I am not in love
When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. And you're back in the studio with Annie and Kim on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, what do we want to talk about? The Greek elections, a little yeah. bit. Um, it's all wow. a little bit depressing. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I was, I was actually quite interested to find out what your opinion is. Now, for people who don't know, but we, you probably, I'm probably talking, to, uh, teaching my grandmother to suck eggs, as they like to say, or they used to like to say. Uh, the um, they, it was democracy in action, of course, but during the. Uh, the anti-austerity uh, campaigns leading up to Sharissa getting in. Uh, they, he goes off, he gets in, they go off to the EU and the Troika, which is the European Commission, International Monetary Fund and European Central Bank. And he comes back and he says to the Greeks, well, you know, we just have to suck it up. We need to have austerity. Uh, everyone went wild in the streets. He then said that uh, we're going have a to... a referendum. That's it. You got it. And... Uh, Historic, like, uh, 61% vote no. No. And then he says we're going to have to have a general election. And he squeaked in. Well, after they'd already voted for um, austerity, then yeah. he has a quick dash for election. And who's he? Cyprus. Yes, Alexis Cyprus. Cyprus. Um but it's quite a cynical manoeuvre, really, uh, because there was no discussion, well, barely any discussion of the memorandum during the election campaign. It was just Cyprus talking about how he would be better than new democracy. And consequently... Which is I, a right-wing... Yes, who previously implemented austerity. So they're a right-wing um, neoliberal party. And so they, you could hardly, they could hardly be in opposition to Syriza, you would think. Um, but it was very demoralising, I believe, for the Greek people because only 55% turned out to vote. Yeah, well, this is an example of people feeling like they can't cause change. Very interesting. Yeah. And EU sources apparently said it was better the leftist was in the leftist was in government applying policies and potentially rabble-raising, rousing on the streets. Well, exactly. And suddenly the European press who were calling Cyprus the devil and Lenin oh, and all him, kinds man. of things, they love him. He doesn't eat babies anymore. No, no, he's too busy <laughs> in Parliament. But it was really incredible. The Basically the vote seemed to go to abstentionism. There were 773,000 less votes than in the January election. So... It seems that it's unfortunate that those votes didn't go to uh, popular unity, which was the left-wing split from Syriza. They no, they to... just stopped. Yes. Yeah, people uh, people are obviously think, reconsidering what it is that they're going to do. The, uh, Cyp- uh, Cyprus um, won um, 145 seats in the 300-seat parliament, just four fewer than when Cyprus first stormed to power early this year and not quite enough. So they have to uh, make a alliance with... The independence, which they did last time as well. Yeah, a right-wing uh, anti-austerity Sort group. of nas- nationalist sort of 
Um, so they're anti-austerity on that basis of being quite yeah. nationalistic, not in a sort of left-wing way. But I thought it was interesting that PASOK actually managed to improve on its January performance, probably because it couldn't do any worse. But uh, the River, which was an openly neoliberal party, um, lost one-third of its support. And I thought maybe that's because the people who were voting for neoliberalism now think oh, that they can it. trust Syriza to implement. Oh, there's a lesson in that. You're <laughs> on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we're going to move on with This Is The Week That Was. And Kevin, we really are dying to hear what Kevin thinks about this week. A weak solidarity brekkie team listener when profound apologies. No excuse other than wishful thinking got in the way of reason. Building all our hopes at the end of this segment last week with that piece of very bad poetry. Assuming stroke, hoping the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats Peter Duffer would end up in the Parliamentary Detention Centre somewhere in the middle of the Pacific, but no such luck. Sorry. The, the only comment is... Given he was retained, what's it say about the competence of those who weren't or just didn't make it? I'm not making it that footnote in history, tiny a bit more for the bosses, was abiding by his I will not undermine, I will not undermine pledge. Scuttled them, scuttled me. And they all scuttled the poor old red-faced Falfax Troublewazzy Capitalist Review. Oh, for the power of prescience, its annual power edition of its monthly glossy magazine. These things prepared well in advance. Yesterday, blush, oops, <laughs> number one, tiny the footnote. Well, they like to perpetuate the myth that power lies in parliamentary democracy. <laughs> number one, tiny the footnote. Number three, Peter, ex-chief of staff, who now says others should promote more women. Perhaps Tiny just didn't listen to her on that one. Anyway, it's a wonder the capitalist review didn't just shred them all. Oh no, sorry, only evil unions do that. New big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull corrected what many true blue Aussies thought was a miscalculation in that footnote's time, that but 5% of true blue Aussies were women. No, no, I've shown my great support for women by acknowledging that 20% of true blue Aussies are women. And we're all celebrating a proud first. The first non-male Minister for Offensive Trained Killing, Marisa Painful Death, who will bring a woman's touch to killing. But I take issue with that painful death bit Marisa chastised us. It is not painful, it is a cause for celebration, for national pride and praising our brave young men and women in uniform, cream of troubler was the youth trained killers, when we kill the evil people we invade under our orders from the great commander in Washington. But it is painful, a national tragedy, if they kill one of our brave, loves his family and dear little children, life of the party, great sense of humour, fun to be with trained killers. We all feel the pain, showing just how evil these people we invade are. Uh, but, but, Marisa, we go there to kill them, wedding parties and all that. Uh, certainly, but that doesn't give them the right to kill us. Down at the sundry trades halls around the country, they were throwing parties, laying out the party pies and barbecued snags over the demise of the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Erica Betts, on the bosses. Good riddance to bad, they raise their glasses. Uh, by the way, who's the new minister? Her name's Makilla Kosh the Workers, the caring employers informed them, looking very smug, very pleased with themselves. 
Uh, does she know anything about the workplace? She's an expert. She was a, she was a senior partner with Free Kills the Workers, our very own, very favourite Bash the Workers, a sorry, balanced, flexible, caring business class relations, big end of town law firm. Yes, a former senior partner at Free Kills the Workers is now Minister for Killing the Workers. But in fairness, she'll be neutral. See, if a socialist government appointed an ex-evil union boss as Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, we'd never hear the end of it. The caring employers and their caring employer media lot screeching bias and impartiality, but their lot are so sophisticated and fair that McKillar will now look at both sides of the equation. Well, she doesn't need to because there's no such thing as class struggle anyway. Both sides, which are the one side, before coming down on the one side. In its usual even-handed approach to evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers, the capitalist review told us she is expected to take a tough line against unions. A free kills the workers' partner. Gee, who'd have thought? It's like industrial relations tribunals. Caring employer appointments are just so fair, so dispassionate, they only rule 100% for the caring employers after proper consideration. Whereas biased, loaded, evil union appointments give improper, uncultured, uneducated consideration before fining for the caring employers just to prove they're not biased. Which doesn't prove it because the caring employers know they are and aren't fooled just because they win every case. Which brings us back to the discarded Erica, Erica um, bets on the boss's final gift to true blue Aussie workers, to that flexibility so necessary in workplaces. New appointments in his dying days to the fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices just looks like a bench, including Christopher Platt, a BHP for bloody huge profits, employee, non-relations manager, who addressed that coven of caring business class balance, the H.R. Nichols Society, on the eve of the 2007 election. It is regrettable that the election of a socialist government will be accompanied by the backswing of the industrial relations pendulum instead of building on the successes of the legislative reform, having made the hard decisions to reform industrial relations True Blue Aussie is now reaping the benefits. The socialist policy, if translated into legislation, will produce a suboptimal outcome for our industry at a time we should be capitalising on our opportunities. And Tania Cherkovich, former legal partner with that working class hero Michael Kroger, who also told the HR Nickel Society, there is a chance to condemn the union movement to history. This will only be done if the employment groups reinvent themselves by refusing to give legitimacy to the collective paradigm. Eric's parting gift to McKillar cost the workers, impartial commissioners who believe evil unions should be condemned to history. They make the Her Most Gracious Majesty's King Commission look like a union rally. Still, thank goodness the incoming socialist policy was not translated into legislation, bringing us to the with friends like that who needs department. Thank goodness workers have that lion of the labour movement, as Malcolm and Mac McKillar's lot call him, our old mate Martin Cliche, who backed the workers to the hilt yet again. At the end of a day, when the sun sets, 
etc., he said evil unions were holding resource projects to ransom, threatening legal industrial action to push demands. Good God, demands. Marty called for changes to the law so evil unions are excluded from the law. We must change the law to protect the world's great resource giants from evil unions and evil environmentalists and local communities who abuse the law by, how dare they, using it. Worse, very occasionally, winning. At the end of the day, we must also look at these irresponsible appointments to the bloody bench. And state public pays private profits transport minister Jacinta Alien to workers join the queue of Socialist Party heavies supporting their constituency, attacking evil rail workers for holding the grand final crowd to ransom by providing free public transport. Disgraceful. Imagine the bitter disappointment fans so looking forward to the big day and then this happens. I can't go. I refuse to use public transport unless they let me pay. <laughs> yeah, they'll all be shattered. The US of the UN of the US of the World Secretary for World State John Caring for Train Killers attacked Russia for threatening peace by sending military advisors and instructors to Syria. We know these evil warmongers are there, he raged righteously, because our great peace-loving U.S. obtrained killer advisors and instructors helping bring peace to Syria discovered them. On the U.S. of seems another tragic loss. Joe Hackey, the workers, will be heading there. Thank goodness we've retained some essential elements of the age of entitlement, he packed his bags. Don't want to make light of the situation, but in Germany, a 91-year-old woman who worked as a telegraph operator at Auschwitz has been charged with complicity in murders. And the bit that got me was, because she was under 21 at the time, she'll be tried in a children's court. She's, she's 91. Reform schools should sort her out. And as the UN of the US of the UN of the world puts a review into human rights under the auspices of that epitome of human rights, Saudi Arabia, true, Saudi Arabia is going to lead a UN of review into human rights. Well, all the Saudis involved in the US of version of 9-11 meant George W. Bash, the workers, and Tiny Blyer and the little bald-headed bloke here had to lead the coalition of the killing into slaughtering and destroying Iraq and Afghanistan. Anyway, as we assume every year, all these pilgrims pray they'll be safe this year, God willing. And then when hundreds, maybe thousands, are killed or injured almost every year, they assume God was not willing. Nothing to do with the way the liberty, freedom and democracy love and Saudi royal lot are prepared to make it safe. Either way, God wins. Like that mob in Britain when a fly somehow stuffed up a bloke's new state-of-the-art telly. The insurance company declared the fly an act of God. Well, they know God made all the little creatures and forgot to tell Noah to pop down and buy a fly swat. Finally, with all this shuffling of the deck chairs, parliamentary democracy, well, plutocracy, was summed up succinctly by this Greek interviewed at the polls last weekend. We should vote for the least useless so he does less damage. No matter who is elected, it is others who rule. Wisdom on democracy from the cradle of Good Morning. 
Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Um, You're here with um, Kim and Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. And we're about to talk to uh, Lyndon Morley of the Bendigo Action Coalition about what's been going on with the um, campaign there against racism. Um, Hi, Lyndon. Good morning. It's lovely to speak to you. Um, we we wanted to. I want to ask you first. What prompted the formation of the Bandigo Action Coalition? If you could give our listeners a bit of a rundown of what's been happening. Okay. Well, in Bendigo, there's recently, over the last couple of years, been a planning issue involving the creation of a mosque in our town. Um, We've got a few churches. It's probably difficult to count how many we've got. We've got a Joss house, a Buddhist temple, and it's quite a diverse community, really. So we've got a lot of really religious buildings and stuff like that. But there's been quite a bit of opposition to the building of a mosque here. And um, basically, it felt like there's... uh, small contingent of very vocal Islamophobes who are sort of um, protesting the creation of a mosque and we've formed uh, as a response to that and as a response to the sort of national attention that's garnered and um, the involvement of external, really extreme racist groups. Like the United Patriots Front, who um, we've had the pleasure of meeting in Melbourne on a few occasions. Yes, yes. They've been to Bendigo once and they're planning to hold another rally and that's uh, basically inspired our group. So the the mosque has been approved, but there, I was wondering if you could describe some of the intimidation uh, that you've been experiencing in Bendigo by these races, both Indigenous and um, the outsiders as well. Yeah, um, well... Person on a personal level, I've uh, received a couple of really hateful Facebook messages from people who have um, seen photos of me from the last protest. I've been called things like rat, disgusting, and disgraceful. But I sort of consider that mild compared to some of the things I've seen online and some of the threats that people have received for just participating in these rallies. And uh, on a um, more local level, we've had um, the local councillors here have received black balloons tied around their mailboxes and around their doorknobs as sort of ominous threats that they shouldn't be supporting the mosque. Is this unusual for uh, the people in uh, Bendigo? How, how, how do they feel? Uh, what's the general tenor of the, uh, say, the local newspaper's response to uh, this kind of behaviour against their councillors? The local press has always sort of treated it as a 
sort of a minority of people who are really vocal but really passionate about uh, protesting the mosque. And that's really been the focus of the whole um, press until recently when the UPF have started to get involved. And uh, while we've always had a really egalitarian community in Bendigo and there's been a lot of um, support for diversity in the community and that's really something that you can sense, it's become really uh, heated and very divisive in Bendigo at the moment, this issue. Because there was, it actually garnered um, quite a lot of mainstream attention, but the case of uh, the racists coming and shutting down a council meeting, could you um, describe that incident for us? Yeah, well, the, the, every week there's a council meeting, or every fortnight, sorry, and, and basically um, the, there's always some anti-mosque protesters who will show up and ask some questions and basically try to be a bit inflammatory and get a bit of attention. But on this particular night, on the Wednesday of the 16th, there was was a large number of protesters and they attended wearing placards around their necks to show what postcode they were from to counter any claims that they were from out of town. And basically it's just been the same situation of previous meetings where they've been asking uh, heated questions and it's just escalated and become so emotional that the police have had to be called to deal with the situation. Now, uh, I read um, responses from a person who apparently has a business across the road from the space where the mosque is supposed to be uh, set up, right, uh, that uh, he had concerns about uh, parking and all the general ordinary issues that come with a development uh, across the road from a business that you might have. And he appeared to be saying that, you know, let live, live and let live, basically. He didn't seem to have any problem now that the council had arranged for certain parking facilities to be created. Is that the general tenor of people's understanding of this mosque? Because there are other types of churches and things like that going on in this town, right? Yes, well, we have the largest Gothic cathedral in the Southern Hemisphere, as I understand it, which is a Sacred Heart Cathedral, so we're not averse to having huge religious buildings here. Um, but there's always been in Bendigo, I feel like, the majority of people have you know, accepted the fact that we welcome any religion and people are welcome to express it in whatever way they want, as long as they don't affect the community negatively. And so there have been some ostensibly reasonable planning concerns raised about the mosque, and mostly they've been raised by people who are protesting it for other reasons. But all of the planning issues have sort of been dealt with, and everybody that's had any concern that isn't of an Islamophobic nature has really been... um, has had their concerns addressed by the planning process and the VCAT process. Are people concerned that uh, Bendigo is going to become the epicentre for uh, the building of a racist minority which wishes to... I mean, there is a concern that uh, this group of people that are actually going to create themselves into a political party and then run for the Senate. Are they planning on launching in uh, Bendigo, are they not? Well, this is uh, the real concern that we have. On the 10th of October, when they return for their rally, that's uh, a part of their larger international day of solidarity with people who have this sort of extreme racist ideology. And uh, 
because they are launching a political party, we're really concerned that they're using Bendigo as a platform and intending to set up a permanent little base of operations here in the centre of Victoria. Yeah, I think that's one reason why um, it's incredibly important that people come up for the counter-protest because um, Sherman Burgess, the, I don't know, the self-appointed head of the United Patriots Front, is claiming that he's going to you know, once he's done with Bendigo, he's going to walk into Aubrey and we can't have these people thinking that they can march through regional towns um, setting up hate groups. Yeah, that's why we feel it's really important to make sure that they don't feel like they can just do this uncontested. We need to all get out there and show that it's not welcome here. Now, it's interesting because uh, when they uh, did their rallies in, in Melbourne, they were trounced. But going to a regional centre means that... Uh, it's harder for people who come from uh, activist backgrounds uh, from a city to make their way to a place like that. So that's uh, obviously the belief that they can create a divide working on the principles of uh, the divide that already exists between the interests of the country, rural Australia and urban city Australia. do you, but see, Bendigo is actually a very big city. Yeah, we've got quite a significant population and um, the greater city includes uh, quite a few, you know, smaller surrounding areas and it's really a di- very diverse and large community. There's a lot of people, but um, it's we've never really had any of this sort of major political turmoil in this area. So it's something that we're struggling to uh, find a way to deal with. It seems like a lot of people in Bendigo disagree with the racists, but they're not not everyone is prepared or used to um, confronting them, um, which seems to be the issue. Um, I understand that the Bendigo Action Coalition is working with um, some of the anti-racist groups in Melbourne, such as the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. How has that been going? Yeah, we've received a lot of support from them and we're really appreciative of all the information and all of the ways that they've um, helped us organise this. And it's it's really handy to be able to have people who've had experience in this sort of a situation being able to um, tell us, you know, how these people organise and what's the best way to counter them and prevent them from being able to establish a foothold. Um, when is tell us the details of the rally? Where is it? It's going to be on the tenth of October, and uh, where is it going to be in the uh, township of City Cityscape of Bendigo? It will be held at the Bendigo Town Hall, and we'll be meeting at a, around midday. I think is when uh, most of the counter protesters will begin showing up at Bendigo Town Hall on the October tenth. Is there any, um, do you know if there's any arrangement for um, transport to Bendigo? I'm sure that people from Melbourne are going, I know that people from Melbourne are going in groups. Um, Have you heard of any um, ways of getting up there? Um, Apart from taking the public transport and using the train, I haven't heard of any uh, sort of groups that are bringing down any sort of uh, buses or transport or anything yet. But if we do hear of anything like that, or if, in, if there seems to be a lot of people who are interested in something like that, then I'm sure that Bendigo Action Coalition would uh, post on our Facebook about organising that. 
Now, how close is, uh, I do have a rudimentary knowledge of Bendigo and the service, the rail service to Bendigo is incredibly good and you can use your MyKey card to actually access that service, um, just put, put enough on it. Uh, but how close is the town hall to the train station? Uh, it's about a two-minute walk or a three-minute walk. It's really not that far at all. There you go. And uh, if people uh, want to get in contact with your group, they should do it through the Facebook? Yes, yeah, that's the best way to get in contact with us. Moment. So that's a Bendigo um, Action um, Coalition Facebook page, and it's very easy to find if you just type in Bendigo Action Coalition into the Facebooks. Thanks for talking to us today, Lyndon. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thank no you. No worries. And uh, best of luck. Yeah, sorry, I just uh, was lost for words for there. there. I, it's just this interesting uh, desire for uh, building up division within Australian society at the same time as the federal government is lumberously creating several police forces uh, like uh, the Border Force and, in fact, the uh, police force that's separate uh, that they appear to be wanting to create uh, around the Royal Commission and the uh, ACC, which they want to uh, develop around the construction industry. Mm. And you're sort of thinking to yourself, uh, what is, is there a growth industry in uh, brown shirts, black shirts? Uh, it's uh, qu- quite insinuating and uh, negative. PSOs, this is the growth industry. These thugs, yeah, yeah. It's And, and as you, um, Annie pointed out at the last rally, um, the police appeared to be actually helping the fascists in lots of ways in terms of coordination and letting them march and so on, and also high-fiving, some high-fiving going on between the police and the fascists, at least one that was caught on camera. Yeah, quite disturbing. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kimmy, and uh, we'll be back in two shakes of a lamb's tail. Thank you, Your Worship. The Marxist Cowboys is a short, subversive uh, film about the alleged criminal activities of the Marxist Victorian Labor College over a 40-year period, uh, Your Worship. And it is all true. Listen, mate, I'm facing a few criminal charges. Yeah, 325 fraud charges? Oh, they're all bullshit, mate. I was shocked. It has a cast of malcontents, including one Karl Marx. The wheels of the class struggle will turn again. This bit of subversion will be shown with two other bits of subversion, at 3CR on Monday the 5th of October at 7pm, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Check the website if you need more criminal ideas of crime. Just be there. I know I will be. Thank you, Your Honour. <laughs> a, a slight impersonation of uh, known characters <laughs> from, I think, uh, probably uh, Barry Humphrey's uh, uh, past efforts. A bit of Chris Gaffney telling you to come to his big event at 3CR. There is another film screening that's going on tonight, actually. It's for Human Rights in Mexico. It's an Australian premiere and it's called... Oh, I always get these things wrong. It's Ayutzinapa. It's Chronicle of a State Crime. It's a new documentary about the forced disappearance of 43 Mexican students. You could not possibly have forgotten the horrendous nature of uh, uh, that particular event. A a busload of uh, student teachers being gathered up and uh, the state being implicated in their murder and uh, subsequent burning 
Disgusting. Vile. Vile. 6.30pm, Saturday the 26th of September, that's tonight, RMIT University City Campus, Room 20 Theatre, Building 80, 445 Swanston Street. That's Building 80, Room 20, the theatre. I think you'll find that it's probably the theatre when you go into the foyer. Mm. But I might be imagining it. Um, And something else that is vile is our government's treatment of refugees and none of that is going to change under our new uh, leader, Malcolm Turnbull. It's a vexing issue. Mm. And there is, after you've been up to Bendigo to protest against the fascists and the racists, there on October 10th, which people are meeting at midday at the Bendigo Town Hall, which we're being told is only about a two-minute walk from the Bendigo station, um, so the next day... And it isn't really the wilds. Bendigo is a very sophisticated, upwardly socially mobile city. So yes, it's quite where there will be a mosque built. Yes. And interesting about this mosque, there are about 300 uh, practising uh, Muslims in uh, Bendigo. This is why they need a mosque. They need somewhere to pray. And there is apparent... Well, it seems to be the city of churches, the largest Gothic church in the Southern Hemisphere. Lyndon, one of our interviewees today, just told us, um, as well as um, a Buddhist temple and many, many other churches. Uh, So it is about, I think, religious freedom as well um, as racism, or they're both intertwined. Uh, But as well, the next day, there is a rally back in Melbourne for refugee rights, and it it starts at 2pm at the State Library and it is calling for no turnbacks to close Manus and Nauru, so no more concentration camps and no Border Force Act mm. and but, an end to mandatory detention. Uh, there's been things happening in uh, Papua New Guinea around uh, Manus Island and the death of Raza, Raza Bahati. Uh, the trial of two uh, local men uh, is uh, happening at the moment uh, regarding that particular event, uh, murder. Um, that's being heard. But at the same time, the uh, information about uh, uh, Wilson contractors, security contractors who were involved in other crimes, uh, rape, Mm. as we were uh, allegedly uh, involved in rape, uh, these people being uh, spirited away before they could be facing charges in the local constituencies. Uh, which has angered the PMG government uh, considerably. And uh, O'Neill, the Prime Minister, was uh, talked to camera for the ABC saying that, uh, how would you like it if, uh, you know, we we extradite uh, people who are charged with crimes and you t- basically you're treating us like uh, the uh, the colonial leavings of uh, the Australian imagination. Well, I think it's what um, one of our interviewees from another week, Victoria Martin, who's from, um, who's been a refugee activist in Perth, was describing uh, that Australia has created these black sites like Guantanamo Bay where basically the legal actions of uh, Australia have no consequence. That's it's exactly really terrifying. Right. Now, it's interesting too that in um, uh, term bulls, uh, government, uh, Peter Dutton hasn't been turfed and the gossip, unverified, was that uh, 
it was supposed to go to hockey, but hockey prefers to go and live the high life in the in the US. As our, that must be the um, dustbin place where they send their um, diplomats. Uh, what is it? Uh, he's going off to be our representative in the United States. Um, I thought didn't um, Kim Beasley had that job, didn't? Yeah, yeah. Well, now he's coming to the end. So anybody oh. who is. Uh, uh, hard to place, but of significant importance in a uh, publicity sense, are sent over to represent us in the US. And so I started, we don't hear about them anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I started to imagine, what does a person like him do? What sort of events would he be taken to that you couldn't... I mean, because it's got to a stage where you can't take him anywhere without him opening his big fat mouth. Well, maybe he can just advise the US on... Um how you get things done in Australia. I don't know, that would be useful information. Maybe he's a, he's an inf- a data conduit. They, they put him in a room and uh, link him up and he go, eh, and then they <laughs> pass on the messages through his uh, corporal presence. Just a medium, really. If they stopped Just him from talking, that would... <laughs> it's not the media, it's a medium. <laughs> and the Pope has been around doing his stuff. He arrived in a, um, a, a cheap car. To the uh, the White House. I don't know what kind of car it was, but it was little. It wasn't a limousine, and so the or a Pope mobile. No, no, it was just little. It was a little black uh, thing that he had to clamber out of, like an ordinary family car. Mm. It was really cute, <laughs> but I did resist listening to anything he says because it. Uh, I might go blind. No, it was because he took so long to say it. I just oh. got too tired. It's interesting because he does say. Like anti-capitalist things, not that it particularly means well, he's, anything. He's being the representative of Jesus Christ. Oh my God! They mm. should put him into a metal. Well, I think they've just worked out that um, the only places where Catholicism is growing is Latin America and places where people are very poor and <laughs> actually quite left-wing. So, and it, it's what the opium of the people. But I am quite interested in um, a little mess. Going back to the Greek thing, where apparently uh, Cyprus has said that uh, they're going to fight. He's going to fight corruption. Have you noticed that there is a whole range of uprisings going on around the world that are based around the message of corruption? Mm. So there's a force afoot, and El Salvador is one of them. Uh, there's a variety of other ones as well. So something is happening out there in the world, and I we'll think, find out about it. Yeah, I think too, Cyprus um, has an interest in finding corruption because Actually, he doesn't control a lot of the... It's a problem that he doesn't control a lot of the Greek bureaucracy for, for oh, his I government. Mm. So that's... Anyway, that's a watching brief. The whole corruption thing, because, of course, nobody likes corruption. Well, yes. And as we saw in the Napthine government when uh, the uh, big uh, corporations were having their celebratory dinners after uh, the East-West Link signings, they uh, and uh, public servants quite happily sat down and put their troughs in the uh, their snouts in the trough together. There you go. Anyway, we've got to leave you. Love you and leave you. Uh, Asia Pacific Currents is coming up next, and I thought I'd play a bit of this uh, uplifting stuff. One day when the glory comes, it will be
been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.